Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Things of Interest. I'm Serena Chen. And I'm Sophia France. Today we're talking about the somewhat questionable attempt to categorise and rate intelligence. Most people have heard that quote, you know, if you try to judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, you'll always think it's stupid. And most of us have had to run the gauntlet that is standardised testing. But the way we codify and talk about intelligence is actually something that serves to entrench many structures in society, both historically and today. Part of this lies in colonialism, because doing exams in your second language is never going to be easy, especially when your first language is seen as inherently lesser. And part of it lies in other intersections of class, race, gender and disability. One of my favourite science history facts is how, in order to try and prove that Europeans have bigger skulls than Africans, different types of grain were used to measure volume, and that's just the tip of the horrific intelligence testing iceberg. Yikes. In a similar way, women and people of colour were often given the more menial jobs, notably in computer programming and physics. Serena is a past physicist and current computer wizard. Can you give us some more background on that? So it's... um. It's a really interesting trend, and I think some of our listeners will probably have seen this graph. Um, and it's a, we'll post it in the show notes, it's a the trend of time versus number of women and men in computer science at universities. And you see this massive spike around 82 in both men and women. This is a time where like computers were just becoming to um, be a thing, and they were massive, and then you see like a downward trend, and as you go on into now, um, as you progress from 82 till now, the trend of women studying computer science just drops, and it keeps dropping, and it drops more after um, the dot-com boom of the late 90s, early 2000s, whereas in men, you see the trend spike, um, and spike very heavily, and this is mostly because back in the day, the act of computer science or computing in general was seen as menial tasks. They were seen as uh, lesser tasks that, you know, even a monkey could do it kind of thing. You're just, it's a lot of like moving numbers around and a lot of calculations, very difficult, very hard calculations. Um, and it was seen that the smart thing was to come up with a brilliant idea and but actually doing the hard work, doing that calculation, it was seen as a menial task and was often given to women. So I think we'll probably mention in this episode a lot um, Henrietta Swan-Levitt and Annie Jump Cannon and uh, Catherine Johnson and a bunch of incredibly smart women who were essentially, they were called computers. They weren't called like computer operators. They were literally computers because that was their job was to do the hard work of actually calculating these incredibly difficult algorithms and, and formula. Um, I know that there were some articles in Cosmos. So uh, there's a beautiful documentary out there, which I think we've mentioned before, called um, Code Debugging the Gender Gap. And this talks about it in much more detail and with much more authority than we ever could because it includes people like the chief computer scientist operating whatever of the United States which we aren't yet. Um, and one of the things that it talks about is the fact that, like, there used to be articles in Cosmo about how, like, being a computer or a computer programmer, as they were starting to be called, was a really good career choice for a woman. Mm. Because, like, you know, it was something we could be, like, something we weren't actively prevented from doing. And it was seen as feminine. It was seen as, like, you know, it's appropriate for a young lady to become a computer programmer. Um, you mentioned Henrietta Swan-Levitt and Annie Jump Cannon, uh, who are just some of the, um, they're physicists by training, so they did similar, the same idea was kind of there, and that it was similar, like, it was a menial task, where they were finding and categorizing stars, and they'd just be given a telescope or, like, star charts and gone, figure out what this is. And their boss was generally the person who got a lot of the praise for it, and often these women had a lot of, um, health problems, so Henrietta Swan-Levitt had to deal with like a lot of health issues throughout particularly the later parts of her life, and there are some beautiful biographies of her out there, and um, Annie Jump Cannon, I believe, went deaf partway through her life, she did. Uh, and just like, but they found stars, and they changed how we understand how the universe works, and what we know about galaxies, and um, Henrietta Swan-Levitt found out like about variable stars 
and like how luminosity and the period, so how often they vary, how those interrelate, which if you're not interested in stars, you might not care that much about, but it means we can tell how far away they are, which means we can figure out how big the universe is. And that's like pretty cool. Like that's really important work, but her job was just like find a star. Um, and I think like that's that's quite fascinating is that as less so in physics, but definitely in computer programming, as it moved from being like this is boring work, like coming up with ideas or coming up with a problem is a really important manly work. As that moved, like it just became a more masculine area. As computer programming became actually important, mm. it became a job for men. It does tell us just how variable our perception of intelligence is because if you look at if you look at the kind of work that the women who were doing computer science um, back in the 80s were doing and you compare it to the kind of work that computer scientists do now um, now that it's a it's a manly job it's very much the same kind of work the same kind of difficulties and so it just goes to show that the same piece of work or very, very similar pieces of work can be seen as menial and not uh, not worthy in one era. And yet 20 years later, it can be seen as, you know, the smartest people in the world uh, in this field. And that just goes to show, like, how bad we are as just a species <laughs> in general at trying to define what is intelligence and what is not intelligence. And to a large extent, I think these women were often respected within their very immediate circles. So, like, we've spoken about Margaret Hamilton before. Um, there's a TV show coming about about Catherine P. Johnson and her contemporaries uh, who were a lot of black women who worked at NASA and, like, figured out how rockets work and how to make us move rockets good. Like, <laughs> I think to an extent they would have their work would have been respected within that very small arena mm -hmm. I think how we want to move now is to generalize that respect and broaden it and go like well it's not just like frippery because a woman does it or like it's not just a bit rubbish because someone who's not part of the major group in society does it it's really cool and important that we're doing these things mm -hmm. and and it's it's in a similar way that um within the sciences often biology, psychology are, like, kind of seen as lesser sciences. They're, like, you know, biology is, like, on the borderline of being a soft science. And part of that is it's it's dominated by women, hmm. which is rubbish. And I'll, yeah, fight anyone who, I'll fight anyone who tries to tell me I do a soft science. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, I was wondering if at high school, and I apologize for taking you back to high school, um... <laughs> You guys had the saying of, like, the Asian five. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I think yes, maybe everyone um, in New Zealand had that. <laughs> yeah. It's super I gross. guess to, like, explain to our listeners, the Asian five, uh, in quotes, is the five subjects, mathematics, statistics, physics, chemistry, and biology. Yeah. So essentially so, it was the yeah. idea that you take three sciences and two maths, and that was, like, super hard and high achieving and the people who actually wanted to do that would always be Asian. Yeah. And it's really gross. <laughs> <laughs> did you take the Asian five? I did no, not take the Asian five. I did mm, not. No. Um, so I did mathematics with calculus a year early. Uh, so I'd yes. already had a um, final year subject under my belt. So in my mm. final year, I did biology, chemistry, physics, English, and French. Nice. So um, yeah. not, not a fun array of subjects, <laughs> particularly when I did scholarship exams in four of them, meaning I had nine interview exams that year. Uh, but yeah. yeah, I had a good time. Yeah. What was interesting was that, like, in our school, I think people did do the quote-unquote Asian Five, but none of them were actually Asian. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is interesting that we, we see subjects like... Um, mathematics and physics and chemistry and the, you know the sciences um and we see them as being harder yeah. than english than the than the social sciences and history and for some reason we see them as better in a way in terms of like smart people do this and 
that's what they do. Yeah, I think and, it's in a I think it's in a similar way in New Zealand. We have sets of languages that are offered for our national qualifications, um, and one of them is Te Reo Māori, the mm. language of the Indigenous people of New Zealand, and that's always seen as like, yeah, not a real language. Like you could you could have done something actually useful, you know, like like Spanish. Mm. And I think that like all of this is super gross. Like it's so horrible. But the fact that we kind of go oh, well, like, these languages that other people speak that, like, aren't our indigenous language, like, they're, they're important, you know. But when you look at it, like, Māori is so similar to a lot of South Pacific languages. Like, it gives you a really good jumping-off mm. point if you want to go and do work in Vanuatu or Samoa or Fiji. Mm. But we never kind of see it like that. No, it is, just to call back to what you said in the intro, it is definitely like a subtle colonization to say that the the language and the actions and the activities of indigenous are lesser than those of um, the Europeans who came over which is fucked up yeah (laughs) I think as well it's um a reflection of New Zealand's somewhat difficult relationship with its indigenous peoples and that we are quite aware that we have some of the best relationships with our indigenous peoples of a lot of um, European colonized places Mm. but it's not good and that kind of tension is quite hard to come around and it's something I've like struggled a little bit with living in Australia and that a lot of people go like oh but you know you treat your indigenous people so much better in New Zealand like (laughs) like it must be really weird kind of being here I'm like yeah it sucks like and I think it's kind of disgusting how you treat your aboriginal people but we're not good we have like one of the most divided incarceration rates along the lines of race like in the western world like we're not good (laughs) we have um the most disproportionate prison population in when you when you look at it in terms of race like we are the most like that's we're number one (laughs) that's that was true as of 2015 i'm not sure if that's changed but that was last year so it's pretty bad. <laughs> and, like, um, actually this kind of provides a really nice gateway into where I want to go next. It's like, so I moved from New Zealand to Australia about two years ago. Um, and one of the comments I get a lot is, like, oh, you don't really have an accent. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's because um, I'm upper middle class. And mm. we, like, we don't. And if I was upper class, I'd probably sound kind of British because that's how we classify and code class particularly in um, English-speaking societies. I don't know how this works for other languages as I haven't lived in um, any societies with not English as their main language for quite some time. Um, and also the fact that, like, Māori people often have a much lower socioeconomic status. It means the accent of people who speak Māori as their first language speaking English is the one that we see as being the lower-class accent and, like, mm. the funny and typical New Zealand accent. Yeah, and it's, I don't know, you kind of get taken aback sometimes because when you think about how many times um, people, like, people I know, people you know, our friends, like, have put on essentially the Māori accent to, um, for a joke or to, to yeah. signal, to basically signal, like, a, a lower class of people. Or, or a stupid person. Yeah, and it it's incredible how much it happens without us even recognizing it. It like this is how how common it is. And like I don't remember, but I'm pretty sure that I've probably done this in the past. Oh, I definitely have. Yeah, and it's <laughs> I mean, these are these are the worst problems. Is like when you realize that you haven't been realizing it. It's like, oh shit! Mm. Well, my measurements are all off, (laughs) and things are way worse than I thought they were. Yeah, I will. Um, particularly if someone's kind of like pressuring me about like maybe I'm not really from New Zealand or like what even like how dare you say your accent's a real New Zealand accent? I'll drop into it, and all I will say in it is like, oh, do you mean this accent? This is Mm. racist. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Um, and I don't like I still don't super think that's okay but it's often when I've just had a super long day and I'm really annoyed Um, and that really doesn't excuse it 
it's like, and you see it in Australia as well, um, let's say that Indigenous accents are seen as, or like mimicked or mocked in a particular way, and part of that is because in the mainstream view of a lot of Australian Indigenous people kind of don't exist. Mm. Um, but like the very bogan Australian accent is the one that we associate with like the Aussie and it's the one that signifies that you have a low class, you have a low amount of education, you're not very smart. Hmm. I guess it's a it's another um, manifestation of how the privileged class is seen as the default, the normal, and this happens with men, this happens with um, white people, with straight people. It's it, They're seen as the default. Um, and I guess we're seeing this in accents as well, in that the upper class... Um, accent is seen as normal. This is just how people speak. Um, whereas the lower class is like, okay, well, this now, you're now speaking with, say, a New Zealand accent or an Australian accent or, you know, a, a, a southern accent that it defines and colours where you are and it labels you. Yeah. Because it's seen as abnormal. And, well, to a large extent, it will like flag your education Mm. like if you have a super thick Australian or New Zealand accent people tend to think that you're slightly uneducated like yeah maybe maybe you didn't do so well at school maybe you're not so smart and that's like kind of awful and like we definitely do this um visually as well Uh, there was a really nice piece I think in the New Zealand Herald recently um written by a I think she was Pacific or Maori girl who was just saying like I've walked into a physics class and been asked if I'm in the right classroom. Like, mm-hmm. I'm taking scholarship physics. This is this is so horrible. Yeah. Um, and that's, like, that's really tough. Mm. And I certainly, um, so, I'm very proud of this. I'm going to brag a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did my final year calculus a year early um, and came top in calculus while doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm like super proud of this I didn't do maths at uni it totally burned me out and I never wanted to touch maths again after that which I was warned would happen and I didn't believe anyone um, <laughs> but when I was at uni I like was chatting to someone who like kind of implied I was you know bad at math and I was like no mate I, I came top in calculus I'm good and he was like yeah mm-hmm. but you went to a girls school you went what? you went to a girls school Okay, hold up. Back the fuck up. (laughs) Yup. Sometimes I wonder just to to what extent, because we know that whatever different environment we grow up in will affect how we use our brains and how much of our intelligence we get to to practice and to actually use. Uh, but sometimes I wonder just how much and how deeply that affects us. Because I also went to an all-girls high school. And I was the first person in the history of the high school to sit scholarship physics. Which nice. is kind of ridiculous. I just think, like, how many girls in that school would have liked physics, would have been really good at physics, would have been fantastically smart and much smarter and more intelligent than I, um, who did not sit it just because that wasn't a thing you did there. And it was just some kind of unspoken code that at your, you know, in this environment you're at a girl's school and these are the subjects in which you should excel in. Yeah. And how much of it is, like, not wanting to stand out as well? Mm. Because I think that was quite tough for me and that I was a very smart, precocious um, child and teenager. And I'm fairly certain that a lot of the extra opportunities I got were because I annoyed the teachers so much they just wanted me off their backs. (laughs) Um, um, And, like, certainly, like, I didn't super care about standing out, but it was still quite tough. 
to be like. So I got moved up a year when I was in primary school. So like I was two years younger than everyone else in my calculus class. That's really hard. And like I see a lot of stories, and I'm sure you do as well, about people who go to university or college if they're in America when they're like 12. Yeah. I'm just like, man, that is going to suck. Like, have a yeah. nap. Play some Pokemon. You'll be right. <laughs> <laughs> we, um... So in our physics and maths years at uni, there was um, a very young boy, I think he might have been 14, doing university-level mathematics and physics. And you could see how hard it was, because he always sat alone. He didn't, he didn't connect with anyone. He wasn't, he wasn't in a stage of his life where he would have, like, common interests to everyone else in the class um and it's also tough because like the people around him we don't know how to how to interact with him either so it was just this incredible like gap and I mean to be fair it was like a, a social gap and there was no gap in terms of like the work that we were doing he was doing the same work we were doing and that was fine but in terms of just support <laughs> yeah um, and a sense of belonging is so important and people often forget that when talking about like oh you know move them up they'll be right get everyone through <laughs> it'll be all good um and yeah. like i have so much respect and a notable amount of jealousy for the people that get these opportunities and get to go to university at like 12 yeah. or 14 Did, were you one of those people because i was who wanted to go to university as soon as possible like if i like, at the age of 13, it's like, if I can go to university now, that would be great. <laughs> like, sort of. Yeah. So, I, like, we can get entry before final year, and, like, because I'd done um, final year calculus, like, I mm. would have been able to go to university a year earlier, probably. But, like, I was 17 for most of my first year. And, like, yeah. even though I don't drink particularly, it's just, like, I knew that I was going to stick out if I went at 16 like and then it, it was yeah. just gonna kind of suck and everyone would be drinking and I'd be alone um and so I just kind of chilled a little bit um also in my final year I got to attend the international biology olympiad um mm, cool so there are a set of uh competitions international competitions there's biology math informatics um Australia recently sent their first girl to the international informatics olympiad so that's embarrassing for the country I mean good for like <laughs> Right now, she yeah. seems brilliant. I'm really glad she went. Australia, what are you doing? <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I went to the biology Olympiad, so I got to spend most of my year, like, basically learning first-year biology and then going to Japan. Um, and, like, I think that really made me a lot happier in my final year than I would have been otherwise. I think otherwise I might have felt... Like, I was already getting quite cynical and bitter about school exams by that point, yeah. and I had university entrance by final exam, so I was like, mm, what am I doing here? Yeah. And I guess, like, when I was wanting to go to, like, that was my, <laughs> my end goal wasn't even to, like, become anything. It was just, I, I just wanted to go to university, because that was such a, it was an environment made for learning, and all yeah. I wanted to do was learn shit, um, like, because I'm a fucking nerd. And, <laughs> Were you um, also, like, the only person in your year who was, like, genuinely into learning? Uh, I don't want to say that I was the only person who genuinely wanted to learn. I think everyone probably wanted to learn. I think I was just a lot nerdier about it. I, yeah. I wanted to know everything. I yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wanted to master everything. And I... Yeah, super nerdy. Um, hey, that's me. Still. <laughs> yeah, and it was. Um, I think I went through the same kind of like cynicism in the last few years of university um, that you felt, because in my last year, which was year twelve, I kind of stopped going to school. Um, <laughs> I I just stopped because I I felt like there was more for me to do and learn and read about and immerse myself in um at home on the internet just fucking reading wikipedia all day because that's who i am (laughs) um (laughs) then going to school where i felt like the pace was slow and boring and i got to the point 
oh, bless my parents. They're so chill. <laughs> my parents were fine with it until they got a letter from the school saying, if Serena doesn't turn up to school, we will remove her from the school role and she will not be able to sit uh, university entrance exams. And then they were like, oh, so you should probably go back to school. And I'm like, oh, fuck. <laughs> I, I, guess, I guess I'm going back. But yeah, yeah it's... Um, I was a massive dick when I was at high school. Like, yeah, same. So I was very, very smart and still am, and I'm much more chill about it now. Um, but particularly at high school, like, I definitely saw intelligence as being a measure of your worth to an extent. Mm, so like that's and you have posted about this on Facebook and I have avoided <laughs> talking to you about it because we're recording um but like I would just if someone wasn't smart I'd just be like well why should I have time for you and like that's not cool and I think a large part of growing up is realizing how uncool a lot of things you thought when you were a teenager were but like man I was just kind of a jerk at high school <laughs> oh yeah same absolutely like there there are many events and things that I got myself into um that I remember vividly that I absolutely regret now like um one of my English teachers um he's very Christian very very religious and we got into an argument about evolution and like high school me dickhead me didn't really consider that didn't really consider how important religion was personally to a lot of people um so I was I was very harsh and I was like you know what like things that we can't measure things that we can't prove we can't get evidence for like you can believe whatever you want but when it comes to things that we can prove like evolution you know fossils are fucking in the ground don't be an idiot, is essentially what I said. The worst part was that, like, my friends, my friend group was also very similar in that we were very, like, science evolution is obviously real, how dare you? And everyone kind of piled on him, and that was, that was bad. <laughs> but yeah, that's the kind of things that happen when you're so blinded by this fake idea essentially it's a fake idea it's say like we thought that intelligence whatever that means was the be all and end all um it was a part of our identity it was where we found who we were and our worth as people but at the time and this is something that we're realizing now right is that we don't know how to even define intelligence we don't even know where to start with that so our entire self-identity that we had in high school was kind of meaningless. I think to an extent that's kind of the point of high school, though. It was like, you're a super gross troll baby for like five <laughs> years, and then you come out and you're like, oh, oh, other people's opinions matter. Okay, no, I'm good, I'm good. And like, I've certainly, I think particularly when I was um, a bit younger in high school, I railed against the fact that our exam system doesn't give us percentages. Because mm. I was like, but I have to show that I'm better than everyone. <laughs> um, and eventually I stopped caring quite aggressively. Uh, the only um, part of a class that I failed in my final year was actually in biology, which uh, is a particular um, thing I've always found quite amusing. <laughs> um, but sort of school testing and standardized testing really grew out of a lot of IQ testing and like this idea that intelligence is something that can be quantified and mm. that you can sort of like look at it and as part of the preparation for this program I believe we both did an IQ test Serena. Oh no I, I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> oh. um, I'm, I'm a bit trashy at the moment but um, I did do a lot of because I was a disgusting troll baby in high school uh and before that as well i did do a lot of iq tests back then for fun uh, <laughs> oh, yeah sorry. no 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 no. it is it is definitely something to laugh at it is something i laugh at like, right. i did algebra for fun you're fine <laughs> yeah 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 oh shit i did that too. so bad anyway uh, nerds <laughs> um yeah i 
right now, my um, immediate feeling towards the even the idea of IQ tests is just uh, I I hate I hate them. Gonna be frank, I hate IQ tests because when I did do them, the range of scores that I got was one twenty one was the lowest and one sixty two was the highest, um, and I got a bunch in between, and that's a really big range. Like, yep. What the fuck are we doing here? And that just goes to show how meaningless they are. It's like, oh, okay, cool. It's kind of like astrology, but for nerds. You you do it, you read your... It's like a personality test, I should say. Um, yeah. Personality quiz, but for nerds. You know, you answer some questions, and they give you like a, like a little score sheet, and you're like, mm, look at how smart I am in these sections. <laughs> yeah, particularly good at like spatial reasoning. <laughs> so yeah, I've always had a bit of a um, quiet detest for IQ tests because I'm very, very bad at spatial reasoning. And for some reason, when you're a smart kid, people keep giving you gifts that require spatial reasoning. Um, so I have a large pile of like fun riddle gifts <laughs> where like you get all these blocks and you turn them into a star, or you try and get these two things apart that I could just never do, and they get a dust in my room for ten years. Um, but like doing the one that I found online by Googling IQ tests online, it really struck me how much of it is culture dependent and almost a measure of like your English language skill. So there are, there are a few questions that are like anagrams and other weird things. And it's kind of like, well, I don't know if that necessarily measures your intelligence. This is something that I, I do remember from doing them back in the day, was that there were a lot of questions that was just like, define this word, and it was some obscure English word. <laughs> and that's it. Yeah, or find the word that's closest to this word. Yeah. And it's like, okay, cool, like, what do you want yeah. from me? Um, and certainly, like, historically, I know particularly uh, in the history of the US, so there's a great book called The Mismeasure of Man by Stephen Jay Gould. Um, he's an American author, uh, had a beautiful, um, long running feud with Richard Dawkins, which if you read their books in order of publication, you can find hints of during it, um, which is just one of my favorite things about him. Um, but the mismeasure of man is all about the history of IQ testing and how, um, for example, they used to test the IQ of soldiers going into the U S army. And a lot of the IQ testing was surrounding, just very context and cultural dependent things that were white people things. And so all of the soldiers of African descent, all of the soldiers who were of Hispanic descent, they couldn't get them right. And so we're like kind of said, no, you're, you're dumb. You're dumb because you don't know about this particular type of glove, for example. Like, and that, that's really kind of awful like I think if you're trying to create a one-size-fits-all test to figure out whatever you're trying to figure out when like you're getting soldiers to go into the army like you should never have it be so cultural dependent that like a, any group can't mm. get it yeah the the testing side is really interesting because it, um in the field of artificial intelligence it's been stalling I mean, it's booming now, but it, it's been stalling for a very long time, mostly due to the fact that we don't have good definitions for intelligence, and because of that, we don't have good measurements for it, and we can't come up with good tests for it. So it's like, if we can't even come up with good measurements for intelligence that we make ourselves, how the hell are we going to do it for real people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, like, you can test what you want to know quite easily, but if you're trying to test something that's undefinable as intelligence, and particularly, like, we've come across this a lot in genetics, where it's like, you try and find genetic markers of intelligence, and the first problem you face is the fact that no one knows what intelligence yeah. is. Um, I guess you... It's hard because it's like, if, if you're writing a test for intelligence, if anyone is writing a test for intelligence, it would be natural for the writers of that test to do well on that test. Am I correct? So yeah. you'd, you'd write something that would 
I mean, probably not on purpose, but one would write something that shows that themselves were rather intelligent. Not maybe the most intelligent, but, you know, rather good. And that's not so helpful. And that is definitely what we've seen in a lot of these IQ tests. You know, they're they're written by white dudes, um, and they test for things that white dudes are good at. Yeah, and I think to an extent we um we touched on this quite a bit in our AI episode. That that first beautiful episode <laughs> with such good audio yes. quality. Um in <laughs> uh, that like if you're a member of a particular group you will be blinded to things and that's fine. You just need to make sure you work with people who aren't blinded to the same mm. things as you. Or like work to overcome that and like figure out like where you can go next. And I mean particularly with the history of IQ testing, like, to a large extent, it was begun and created to, like, facilitate and further oppression, Mm. right? Like, historically, like, oh, God, there are all these really awful genetics papers from, like, the 20s and 30s talking about how, like, um, idiocy is a genetic trait that's recessively heritable and seems to, like, move with poverty and like showing pictures of like families and just being like all of this family are idiots and it's like cool good great love that history of ours and like a lot of that was um under the guise of eugenics with the idea that like if there is you know someone who is not as smart as they could be and like maybe not um not with learning difficulties or intellectual difficulties, but like, you know, they're, they're just not that bright. Maybe we should prevent them from breeding. And to a large extent, like, that fell out of favour because of Hitler. Because, like, because that was a lot of what Hitler was behind. He was behind the idea that, like, if people weren't as good as they could, oh. like, as good as the best possible person, we shouldn't let them have kids. We shouldn't let them breed. We should also maybe put them in concentration camps. And, like, I think, like, it's kind of horrifying that the only reason that eugenics fell out of favor and like it took a long time in some places. Like um, I think one of the Nordic countries was still forcibly sterilizing people with intellectual disabilities to like the sixties or seventies. Seventies. Like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it took a really long time. It's so messy. It's just, Oh, Oh, the history of science is a horrible, horrible thing. The the worst thing about reading this shit is being like, okay, well, these people back then obviously kept going with their disgusting shit. What are we doing now that we have no idea is wrong? That's what I'm scared about. Like, are we doing something just as disgusting and we just have no idea? Like, Well, I mean, there's the fact that um, uh, intersex children will often have their genitalia reassigned um Sometimes without their parents' consent, but usually just, wow. like, without even telling them, they'll have surgery for, like, years of their lives. I think that's the one that really springs to mind as being the most horrible and disgusting. But a lot mm. of people um, who do research on disorders of sex development and intersex kids, like, are often just really cool and respectful about it. Mm-hmm. And the issue is more, like, at, both, like, at the coalface and also in parents' opinions and that like I mean what do you want for your kids right you want them to be normal Mm. and despite the fact that um, different types of intersex traits happen in like maybe up to 5% of the population probably more like 0.5 to 1% of the population like that scene is not being normal and something we have to fix but yeah 5% is a lot um, 5% is probably, like, including relatively mild variants. Mm. So things that you might not necessarily notice until, like, I don't know, you need a hysterectomy or something. Um, right. But, like, things like Kleinfelder syndrome affects 1 in 10,000 people, which doesn't sound like very much, but, oh, man, it is. <laughs> a lot of people. I yeah. mean, there's a lot of people in the world, so. Yeah. Mm. But, yeah, no, that's the one that springs to mind as the horrible things we're doing right now. Yikes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, something I kind of wanted to touch on as well is, like, uh, this idea of, like, the autistic savant. Mm. 
which kind of was popularized by Rain Man, apparently, a movie I've never seen. Um, and, like, to a lesser extent, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime by Mark Haddon, um, uh, which is such a good book. I love that book so much. Uh, do, do you relate with the protagonist? I relate with him so much. I do. But then He's also, like... so great. I've also been diagnosed with autism, so yeah, I lived that life. Um, it was actually quite a funny conversation um, mm-hmm. when I was like initially, and in a very chill way, diagnosed. Um, because one of the questions that you get asked, like when someone's trying to figure out if you have autism, is like, do you have like obsessions that you know you spend all your time thinking about and doing, and like really take over your life? Um, and I just kind of looked at the doctor for a bit, and I was like. I'm a PhD student. <laughs> yeah, but also I mean, of yeah. course. <laughs> like, what do you want from me? <laughs> um, and like, certainly the autistic savant is like not cool. It's not a good thing to have because the way it came about was because like often autistic people will obsess over particular things that they like they'll learn everything about that particular fact and for me that was biology that was like I used to read books on physics and do algebra for fun like so my special interest really aligned with the school system and so never got picked up on Mm. um but often you'll find that maybe they're really interested in dancing or pokemon cards or like how Mm. to care for a particular animal and so this idea that like and it's also the idea of, like, if something's wrong in your brain, something else is better. And that's, like, the kind of story that's told around a lot of mental illness in the sense that, like, oh, but all the most creative and intelligent people had depression and anxiety. So, like, maybe this is just, like, meant to be. And my response to that is generally no, but fuck you. Because, like, we can't say, like, you know, part of your brain breaks or another bit gets better. Sometimes part of your brain is just kind of broken. And, like, that's fine. And... If you can take medication for that, like consider that or get, you know, go and have medical interventions for it otherwise. And the idea of the autistic savant is like part of that narrative as well. It's the idea that like the social part of your brain is broken, so therefore you're now beautiful and an amazing piano player. And like, <laughs> you know, you can't hold a conversation with someone, and like sometimes you need to like rock back and forth on the floor when things change too much. And if, um, your food gets mixed together, if it's not a soup, you get pretty upset about that. But, you know, it's all fine because, like, Mm. you're just a beautiful painter. I wonder how they diagnose autism because from what I understand it's it's like a quite a wide spectrum, right? I just had a chat. I mean, it did start because um, I went into the GP for a checkup for something else and I sort of Mm. said, it's come to my attention that uh, people can actually understand complex facial expressions and it's not a running joke. And my my doctor sort of said, well, why did you think it was a running joke? I'm like, well, because, you know, like Santa and also drop bears. Like, we have running jokes that we kind of accept mm-hmm. in society and, like, never really explained them. Like, I don't think I've ever explained drop bears to anyone properly. But turns out complex facial expressions aren't one of those. It's sort of like it went unnoticed for a long time because they have a, like, quite complex set of rules for, like, navigating social environments and figuring out what people mean when they make different faces. Yeah. Um, but it's not natural. And that's kind of the difference between, like, being autistic and not being autistic is, like, when you're not autistic, you just kind of get socialising. You're like, yeah, I'm vibing this. I'm vibing and keeping it tight. This is all good. Um, whereas when you are autistic, it's just, like, for me particularly, and this would differ between autistic people, like, I essentially just use up a lot more processing power to have social interactions with people. Hmm. Because, like, it's become quite quick and quite natural to me, and, like, I've learned how to, like, navigate different social environments, and, like, when something new happens, I can generally adapt to it okay, or I just leave. I leave a lot of social occasions. (laughs) Um, But it's not natural. And That's interesting. I've always just thought, like, because I'm terrible, like, reading faces but I've always just thought it's like maybe it's something that you're not good at uh and like I am not good at I don't know riding a bike or (laughs) I'm not good at a lot of things um 
I can't play the guitar very well. And I just, I don't know, how do we classify things, skills like reading facial expressions as a skill that is natural or a skill that is learned? There is a sort of like thing that's meant to be like a measure of emotional intelligence, which is called like the EQ. And I don't really know Mm -hmm. that much about it. I've heard a few people mention it. People talk about it, but I don't think I've ever seen a robust definition. Well, there's stuff like, you can pick it up in babies pretty readily, that um, there are some babies that, like, you smile at them, they'll smile back. You blink at a baby, they'll blink back. Um, And the more severe autistic kids, uh, their parents will often mention, like, when they were babies, they didn't do that so much. They weren't so good at that. Um, I think I've... And, it, like, it wasn't just the complex facial expressions that led to my diagnosis. It was a very long chat where, you mm. know, the GP was like, do you get overstimulated by lots of loud noise and voices? And I'm like, when I'm in a crowd, I want to cry constantly. Um, I thought that was anxiety. And she was like, no, no, I'm pretty sure this is. And then we had, like, this sort of special interest talk and, like, talked about, like, a lot of my life. Mm-hmm. And there are things, like, so... um often women will get diagnosed later with autism and part of that is because like we're socialized to learn how to socialize if that makes sense yeah we're like, socialized to hide anything that's seen as abnormal we're socialized to hide any symptoms yeah and so like where an autistic uh boy or an autistic cis boy might like be angry and lash out and autistic girls generally a cis girl because often like at that kind of age people Yep, there's difficulties there, and I'm using very broad <laughs> terminology, and I apologize if I offend anyone. I myself identify as non-binary, so like, let's just vibe on this, because psychology textbooks are bad at investigating this. Um, mm. But an autistic girl will often, when she's angry, be quiet and like act sad or shy instead. Mm. And like part of that is just like the socializing, how the people that you perceive as being like you act. And so you'll often find autistic women are diagnosed both much later, who often have been misdiagnosed with anxiety or ADHD, um, and will often have a history of sexual assault. And that's because we cannot pick up on danger signals. <laughs> we are, in fact, very bad at this. And, like, that is definitely something I've experienced. Like, I've experienced a horrifying amount of sexual assault. And even looking back, I can't point to something and say that was a danger signal like I just have no idea what danger Mm. signals look like I am uncomfortable in most social situations so like when someone's being kind of creepy like unless they're like actually sleazy at me like I don't flag that particularly if I'm with a friend and I'm feeling uncomfortable and like most sexual assault is committed by like a lot of sexual assault is committed by friends like Mm. that's if I'm uncomfortable with a friend like I don't flag that I don't yeah. see that as being a bad thing because just like, oh, okay, like, I don't know what's happening. This is an emotion. Well, I'll put it to one side. Okay, let's go. Yeah. Like that, it blends into the background yeah, of like uncomfort. Um, and there's a lot of really good articles, both about like uh, the misdiagnosis of all um, autistic women um, and one that I read quite a while ago, which I will have to go and find again, about how often you'll find autistic people will have a higher rate of being trans or non-binary because... We've just got to the point where we've stopped giving any shits about societal expectations. <laughs> and it's kind of like, well, I don't feel like anything, so why would I identify as anything? Basically, intelligence is a lie. <laughs> and standardized testing is kind of rubbish, but like, we don't have a better alternative for it because often schools, universities, and like jobs have a really high throughput of people they have to deal with. So like, it's easy, and it kind of makes sense to... like simplify people down to a collection of numbers but that sucks and that's why we should all go to networking events all the time it's also just like you go to a networking event and you get to show off a little bit like I was not very good at exams ever um but I'm really good in person like I'm very smart and I can be quite charming and like when I'm having a yarn with someone, they can see that. But if they look at my exam grades, they'd be like, this person is not, like, a very good student. They clearly aren't that smart. The thing with intelligence is that it's 
it's so broad and and so all encompassing that it makes no sense to to test for one dimension and not the other. It makes no sense to to test for it in one context, e.g. an exam, you're sitting down, it's quiet, uh, and you're there for three hours, and you're going to be quiet and solve some problems for three hours. Um, whereas in the context of a very, a very social event where you're thinking on the fly um, and your brain is adapting and it's adjusting to the different conversations flying at you, like, that is a different context for intelligence to play itself out and that is I'm going to even go as far as to say in our world of today um where we live in like a western world relatively wealthy to get jobs to to quote-unquote succeed networking and talking to people and making connections with people I found is oftentimes much, much more valuable than um, how great I was at sitting down for three hours and doing a lot of maths. Yep. And, and also just independent projects are kind of a huge value there. Like, I know that you have made a plug-in for Chrome, Serena. Um, and, like, <laughs> that will be probably, I guess, I don't do computer stuff really good when, like, you come to leave your job and ride off into the sunset and, like, work for Google, um, where you can show that you did something by yourself and you can create things and you're good at stuff. And then by the same account, like, working with diverse teams and diverse groups is also seen as really valuable a lot of the time in the sense that if you do your honours and your PhD in the same lab, you better get a postdoc somewhere else, otherwise... Mm -hmm. Anytime you apply to any group, they'll be like, well, you can work with this particular group of people, but can you work with anyone else? Mm. Um, yeah. Life experience is the important thing, basically. Yeah. You should still study, but exams, ugh. <laughs> basically, like, be curious and be interested in things and, like, fulfill your love of learning but without being a dick about it. Yeah. <laughs> there are many ways intelligence manifests itself and we don't have to base our identity and our self-worth on it. Yeah, base your identity and your self-worth on, like, not being a dick. <laughs> the things you love and not being a dick. Basically, don't be a dick. <laughs> All right, we're done. <laughs> okay. <laughs> some things this week um so look <laughs> thanks for listening to things of interest and this episode on intelligence which was suggested by michelle so if you want to suggest an episode you can tweet at us on at casting interest you can message our facebook page which is things of interest uh you can email us at casting interest at gmail.com um and for all of these details and contact details you can always go to our website which has been created by serena it's the most beautiful thing i've ever seen um <laughs> thinksofinterest.co thank you so much for listening and if you enjoyed this episode if you enjoy our episodes please do share it with a friend um if you have some time leave us a review tell us how we're doing give us some stars on the itunes or your podcast collection of choice and thanks for listening we'll see you next time